You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get into Philippians. We're going to start the book of Philippians today. We're going to make our way through it. The Bible study this morning is entitled The Gospel Unchained. We will be in Philippians chapter 1, and we will be going through the first 18 verses. Let me just say a word about the book of Philippians. This is, again, another one of Paul's prison epistles. He wrote this epistle while imprisoned in Rome. He wrote it uh, to a church in Philippi that he had founded on his second missionary journey. Now he's writing this letter in about 61 AD and he's writing it to this church that he was instrumental in founding. And this letter is perhaps one of the most tender-hearted and personal letters of all the Pauline epistles because of the heart that he has for this church. Um, he founded the church in his second missionary journey as he was going through. It's believed to be the first church that he established in, on the continent of Europe. And this is the place, if you recall, where Lydia, the woman who sold that purple dye, she got saved. She was a prominent woman in the community, and she came to salvation. The Philippian jailer, as we'll encounter in a, in a few moments in our study this morning, he came to faith and his family. And so Paul, the, the reason he's writing the letter, it's a thank you letter, uh, actually, because the church in Philippi had sent a gift, probably money, through one of their number, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. And he, uh, he brings this gift to Paul. And of course, when you were in a Roman prison in those days, you pretty much had to fend for yourself. You had to hope you had people on the outside who could bring clothing to you or bring food to you because, you know, it wasn't like prisons today. They're not great, but you do get three squares and a bunk, you know, and you get clothes. And it wasn't quite that way in that time. So this is, this is what's going on in the book of Philippians. And, and so um, imagine this, if you will, and this is kind of the setting that we're going to work around in the Bible study. What would happen? If the gospel was prevented from going out, imagine that governments around the world, they're taking concerted actions to shut down all the airwaves so that you can't broadcast the gospel uh, over modern media. Uh, legislation is enacted that prejudices churches from a tax law standpoint and, and other restrictions placed upon it. Uh, there are laws established that that restricted the meeting of churches and there was persecution that was tolerated and even promoted by government and leaders of churches arrested and all that. This, this scenario sounds pretty severe, maybe even over the top. But there are some who look at the developments in our current world, including our own country, and they become concerned that that kind of restraint is not so far-fetched anymore and may indeed be something that we experience in our lifetimes. But at such times as this, we need to remember that the most hostile environment for the furtherance of the gospel probably was happening in the first century. 
in the time that Paul lived, in the time that the church is being birthed. Keep in mind that the leaders who were bringing the gospel to the world were a relatively few number of people. And so if you could contain, control, incarcerate those people, why the gospel could be shut down. I mean, here we have Paul, for example, and he's writing this epistle. He's in prison. He didn't commit burglary. He didn't commit murder. He didn't commit grand camel larceny. He, he preached the gospel. And because he preached the gospel, he was imprisoned. He was in chains. Yet here we are with a millions and millions of other Christians 20 centuries later, saved people, living for Christ, sharing the gospel. And the reason is that the gospel cannot be chained. The gospel cannot be contained. It cannot be snuffed out. God's word tells us that not one jot or tittle will remain unfulfilled before this world passes away. God's word, as we read from the prophet Isaiah, it will not go out void. The gospel can not only not be contained, but it actually thrives in the midst of persecution. And this letter is testimony to that fact. Our text today, these first 18 verses of Philippians chapter 1, are going to lay out for us four aspects of the power of God that overcomes any of the schemes and wiles of the enemy to restrict and to shut down the going forth of the gospel. And the gospel is going to prosper in the face of the very worst that the enemy can bring because of these four factors. I'm sure there's others, but these four I kind of drew out of this particular text. The first being what is known as the fellowship of the gospel. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. By the way, we're doing it right now. Secondly, the power of God's sanctification of the believer. And we'll talk about what that means. Thirdly, the power of love that believers have one for another. And finally, the power of God to work in the midst of trials. And this is one of the most encouraging aspects of this whole uh, study this morning. So if you would please stand with me. And right, for right now, we're going to read the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 1. And then uh, later on in the Bible study, we'll read the rest of the passage. Here's what it says. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in the knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being fulfilled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. 
Let's pray. Father God, wow, what confidence Paul speaks from a Roman prison. What freedom he exudes as he sits there in chains because he knows the gospel cannot be chained. And God, here we are, 20 centuries later, beneficiaries of the power of the gospel unleashed by you through men just like Paul. This morning, I pray, Father, that you would impress upon our hearts first the freedom that we have in Christ regardless of the circumstances we face in our world. Secondly, Lord, give us confidence that the gospel goes forth to do precisely what you command it to do and that we are merely an instrument in your hand and no matter how we individually are restrained, the purpose and the work of the gospel goes forth. Lord, let it impress it, impress it upon our hearts this morning May you work the gospel into our hearts through the power of your spirit. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, let's look first at the power of the fellowship of the gospel. And there are a couple of indications of what this fellowship of the gospel is all about. You get it even in the, in the very greeting that Paul provides uh, First of all, this letter identifies the authors as Paul and Timothy. We don't know which part each one of them played in putting this letter onto sheepskin or paper or whatever they created it on. But they identify themselves as bondservants. And you see Paul use this terminology relative to himself on several occasions. And it's interesting because he actually is a prisoner, and yet he doesn't identify himself as a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't identify himself as being incarcerated because of the evil intents of a religious, a fanatical religious leadership. No, he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, which is to say that he is compelled by who he is and who God is to serve God. Now, he doesn't call the people that he's addressing in the letter bondservants, but the implication is there. Instead, he calls them something else. He calls them saints. You see it there. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. By the way, the indication of bishops and deacons would say that this church in Philippi now is a pretty mature church. It's, it's gotten to the stage now where they have some leadership and, and some guidance and all. And he calls them saints because that word, it's not just a select few who have to do a certain number of miracles and are forever painted with a little gold disc over their heads. Saint simply means that you are an individual who, because Jesus Christ lives in you, because you've put your faith in him, you have been set apart from the world. You don't have fellowship with the world. You have fellowship with fellow saints. And that fellowship is in Jesus Christ. And so in the way he identifies himself, hey, I'm compelled to serve the Lord. Hey, you guys like me are compelled to serve the Lord. You're set apart for the exclusive use, enjoyment, glorification, magnification of Jesus Christ. That's all part. It's all speaking to this idea of the fellowship of the saints. And he greets them with two words that you see throughout all of his epistles, save for three. You see him here greeting them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the Pauline epistles have that greeting with the exception, as I said, of, of three, and those would be First and Second Timothy and Titus. 
Those three epistles are not considered the prison epistles. They are considered pastoral epistles because they were addressed to pastors. And appropriately, the greeting in those three epistles is grace, mercy, and peace. And as a pastor, I can tell you, I am very appreciative of that addition of mercy in the midst of the grace and peace. Uh, Paul understood very well what it meant to be a pastor, what it means to bring the gospel to people who at least initially don't want to hear it and maybe aren't real happy about you speaking it. Um, But this idea of grace and peace, he always gives it in that order. First grace, then peace. And the reason is very deliberate. We must experience and receive the grace of God. How do we do that? Well, when we come to faith, when we pray to receive Christ, when we repent of our sins and we invite Christ into our hearts, he is bestowing on us the grace that he set up on the cross of Calvary. It's free and it's offered to all, but only those who who are willing to receive it actually have it. And once we have the grace of God, we are now in a position to experience the peace of God, peace with God. If we have peace with God, then we can experience the peace of God. And so he always brings this greeting in that order, grace and peace to you, or in the case of his pastoral epistles, grace, mercy, and peace. Thank you, Jesus. Um, Now, let's talk about this word fellowship because, you know, there are certain words in our parlance today that are just overused. And, And I don't know why, but uh, words matter for me. You know, I, I like words. I look up words all the time. Um, it's just a thing. It's, it's just something that I've always had an interest in. And so I can be delighted by certain words and I can be really annoyed by certain words. Uh, some words are just way overused. I think, for example, the word family has been done a great disservice because anytime people get together and they're doing anything, they say, well, we're just like family. And I want to just shout out, well, you're not like my family. You know, I mean, if that's what a family is about, it's a disgrace to families. You know, it's just overused. It's overapplied. Everything now in our day is a journey. Well, it's not. Everything's not a journey. And and so uh, I think sometimes fellowship can be overused and misused. We understand it usually to mean a cordial, friendly gathering of people. And usually it involves food, especially in Calvary chapels. This is why the great Gail Irwin used to refer to the Calvary Chapel movement as Calorie Chapel. Because every time we get together, it's, you know, if I'm there, it's fried chicken or something of that nature. And, uh, and so we tend to think of, of fellowship as a time when we have food together. And, you know, if we gather, for example, in our fellowship hall, around a pie that one of you talented people has made. I suppose we could call that the fellowship of the pie. And that would bring some comfort and some joy. But it's, it's really not getting to the heart of what fellowship is about because when we talk about the fellowship of the gospel, what we're speaking about is the, the thing that binds us, the thing that, that creates the moment of fellowship 
is the gospel. You have fellowship when you have something that is the centerpiece that you all relate to, like a wagon wheel where there's a hub and spokes. And that hub, not an apple pie, but Jesus Christ and his gospel. And all of us, as different as we are, different, we, maybe we come from different countries, different backgrounds, different ethnicities and races, but we all relate to this one singular person. And that's Jesus Christ and the word of God that reveals him to us. And this is the fellowship of the gospel. And in the fellowship of the gospel breeds something we're going to talk about in a few minutes, and that is the love among the saints. When the saints have fellowship around Jesus Christ, there's power in that. There are churches right now all throughout Asia and Africa that have a building to meet in, They have wells dug to provide water for their village because the fellowship of the gospel means people living four, five, six thousand miles away said, my brothers and sisters are in need and they sent whatever was needed to address that need. There are places where there are a very few Christians and they need to be encouraged. And so brothers and sisters from other nations gathered there maybe at risk to their health their life whatever but they gather there because they have the fellowship of the gospel with those that are there i am blessed and also embarrassed by something i've been reading lately because we have started to see apostasy growing so much in the american denominations of the greater christian church countries that we used to once send evangelists to are now sending evangelists to us Some of these denominations that have really started to go off the rails and have started to bring apostate doctrine into their their, their brother and sister churches in Africa and Asia who are not willing to compromise the gospel, the true gospel. They're sending people from their churches to America to awaken us back up. Hey, you're off the rails. You've left the truth. This is how the fellowship of the gospel works. It is Let me use that overused word. In a true sense, it is family. It is fellowship. It is loving one another as God would have us love one another. Now, the second uh, power of God that keeps the gospel moving forward in spite of all obstacles, you see it there in verse 6. Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but in my time as a Christian and in my time as a minister of the gospel, there have been more times than I care to admit where a ministry opportunity comes up, whether it's just like a spur of the moment thing or whether it's a plan. Hey, we're going here for a mission trip or hey, we're going to start this ministry or hey, you need to go counsel this person because what's going on in their world is is viciously evil and it it needs counsel. And there have been times... Like I say, more times than I care to admit, where I would say, I don't think I can go there. I don't think I could do that. I don't think I'm the one to go into that place or or, or to bring ministry in that context. And I think that's the case with most Christians. And I have to tell you... um, If everyone who ever received Christ remained exactly where they were the day that they were saved, Christianity would have been dead on arrival. Every single Christian 
who begins having just enough faith like a mustard seed to receive Christ still has a long way to go before they are actually trusting Jesus on a day-to-day basis with new and ever-challenging issues, battles like we sang about this morning, ministries that God wants to advance. And this is true, you know, we tend to read the Gospels, we tend to read the book of Acts and we think these people were rock solid in their resolve, they were, they, they were strong and they were determined and nothing could be further from the truth. Those people of the first century were simply no stronger in their resolve, no different than you and me, uh, no less sinful than you and me. When Paul the Apostle was writing to the Corinthian church, now these are people he considers brothers and sisters in Christ. He's not writing to the unsaved masses. He's writing to a church that he was instrumental in planting. This is what he said to them. This is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 11. He said, Do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkens, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen carefully to the next sentence. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of Jesus, of Lord Jesus by the, and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is addressing a group of people who probably had on their docket, on their balance sheet, every single sin you could think of. In fact, Corinth was a city that would make Las Vegas blush based upon what historians have told us about that city. This is not a place that was was filled with holy rollers. It was filled with the most sinful kind of people you could find in any period of history. And as Paul points out, members of that church came out of that. That's who they were. And to be frank, that's who many of us were. And yet, God, God, the day that we prayed the prayer to, to receive Jesus Christ, Jesus made a commitment that he would conform us into the image of his son. And Paul, speaking with confidence there in verse 6, says that he who has begun a good work in you, what was that good work? It was the work of salvation. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And if you think about it this way, salvation is a work that God does for us. Sanctification is a work that God does in us. And as he completes the work of sanctification, he brings about Christian service, which is a work that God does through us. And that's the way it progresses. And so if you look at the great Men of faith in the Bible uh, consider Peter, for example. Peter was one of the 12. Peter was at the elbow of Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry. And yet when it came to crunch time, Peter was the one that denied Jesus three times. The Lord gave him more than one chance to say, oh my gosh, I was an idiot. I said, I don't know this man. Yes, of course I know this man. He is my Lord. He is my teacher. He is my friend. And I'll stand with him. But he didn't do that. He denied him three times. But that was part of his sanctification. Remember, Jesus told him that very night, 
Satan has approached me and has said he's going to sift you as wheat. And I pray that your faith will not fail, that you will ultimately be able to go on from that. The Lord dug a deep trench in Peter's heart with those denials. He allowed that sifting to happen. But then when the Lord meets him on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he filled it with love and forgiveness. Peter, do you love me? You know I do, Lord. Feed my lambs. And Peter becomes the point of the spear of the furtherance of the gospel among withering persecution, the likes of which we've not seen because of the power of sanctification of the saints. David, David committed horrific sins, the worst, the worst of the worst sins. He committed them all. Sexual indiscretion, lying, murder, lying, murder, lying, murder. And yet he went on to lead the armies of the Lord against the enemies of the Lord. Isaiah wrote in 55.3, Isaiah 55.3, Incline your ear and come to me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you the sure mercies of David. As we, in our own walk with Christ, experience his power, his might, but most importantly, his love and forgiveness, we are challenged day by day. There may be times when we refuse, Lord, I don't think I can go there. Or we stumble and the Lord picks us up, dusts us off and says, try again. Try again. And we grow and the gospel goes forth because people have, have broken through the barriers that Satan tries to put into their lives by telling them through the spit of condemnation, you are no good, you are not really a believer, you have fallen, you have failed, God has rejected you, you cannot come to Christ, he cannot use you. And we meet, that, we meet that resistance and the Lord pushes us on through it. And the gospel goes forward. It's a beautiful thing. Now we come to the love among believers. We know that from scripture that we love God because he first loved us. In fact, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It all starts there. Sort of the nuclear reactor of love is Jesus it all emanates from there. And the love of God shed into our hearts, it becomes a distinctive, a distinctive force in the believer. So much so that John wrote in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. What John is essentially saying is that, look, if you don't have a burning love for your brothers and sisters... You're probably, you, you need to go back and check your bona fides as a believer. Because when we come to Christ, we have accepted with open arms and an open heart the love of Christ. And the love of Christ, it cannot stay stationary. It cannot stay stagnant. Once you possess the love of Christ, you live out the love of Christ. And this is the way it works. It's, it's almost like a baton Jesus passes the baton to the believer. The love of God explodes in our hearts. That love of God comes forth from us and it touches other lives. This is the marriage between service and evangelism. We don't 
feed people, clothe people, or, or those kinds of ministry services in order to be seen as generous, good people. We see it as an expression of love that those people who receive it might come to a closer understanding of the love of God and desire it too. And that's very often the way it works. And he talks about this here um, in verses 9 through 11, that our love is a love that comes with knowledge. Look at verse 9. He says, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What he's telling us there is that as we continue to know God better, we know God better by exactly what we're doing here. As we go into his word, as we study his word, as we encourage one another in the word, our knowledge of God evokes a higher measure of love in our hearts from God. And it motivates us to disperse or to, to set forth that love to the believers and also to the world. And love is the most, I mean, I don't think this is like just being poetic for the sake of this is a church service, so we need to say these things. This is true. Love is, is most definitely the most powerful force on earth. The love of a mother for a child, the love of a father for his family, the love of a father for his wife, the love of a believer for fellow believers. That kind of love has overcome everything that the enemy has been able to throw at it. There's nothing that love has not overcome in our world. And it comes from a knowledge of who God is. You know, there's an awful lot of people in our world that are not loving. And it's because they have long since rejected the notion of God. Not only do they not worship him, they don't even believe he exists. To think that God could exist apart from love is really a stretch I cannot go to. Because if you think about who we are as human beings in a fallen world, apart from God, there's only one thing that governs our lives, self-interest. I need to do for, for me. I need to get for me. There would be absolutely no basis upon which anyone would sacrifice for the good of anyone else were it not for love. And love cannot exist in a world without God. As I said, the, the, the source of all love is God. And so when we're filled with that love, because we have gained discernment from studying his word, we start to approve the things that are excellent, the things that matter. Our families, they matter more than money. Fellow believers matter more perhaps than more free time. These are the kind of decisions you make as you come to know who God is and what his plan is for your life. And that makes the gospel unstoppable, even in the midst of the most trying circumstances. Now, finally, we come to the power of God working through trials. You might think that trials are an obstacle for God, an obstacle to overcome. But I think if, if you reflect on your experience as a Christian, as you look at the scripture and as we see the verses we're about to read, God actually uses trials as, a, as an instrument as a tool 
to actually advance the, the, the cause of the gospel. It, it's amazing. Watch this. Uh, picking up in verse 12, and we'll read down to verse 18. Paul says this. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, imprisonments, beatings, unfair trials, the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it may so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ and most of the brethren in the lord having become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear some indeed preached Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill the former preached Christ from selfish ambition not sincerely uh, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether it in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Now, this might be the most mind-blowing portion of this whole uh, epistle, frankly, because what Paul is telling us, essentially, is that the worst things that can happen to us will not keep us from the best things that God has for us. Think about that for a minute. The very worst things that could happen to us will not keep us from the very best things that God has for us. It, that's a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> that's a hard pill to swallow. Um, but we know that God is working in the midst of everything. Let's turn, men, you know these verses well. But if you would, just flip over to Romans chapter 8. I, I think many of you know these verses well. And, and um, verse 28 of Romans chapter 8 is my life's verse. We read there in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things, now that operative word is all, all things? How about the death of a spouse? How about a terminal uh, diagnosis? How about the loss of a child? How about a war? How about fill in the blank? If we're talking about all things, those things have got to be in there too, not just lollipops and puppies and ice cream cones, which, by the way, are also good things. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. They work together for good. Well, what good are we talking about? We're talking about the ultimate reason why we're here, to glorify and magnify Christ, to bring forth the Lord to the rest of the world, to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. These are all things that God promises us, even in the midst of the worst trials and tribulation we can, we can imagine. And then if you just jump over to verse 31 of the same chapter, Romans 8, Paul's conclusion to this really majestic chapter, he says, what then shall we say to these things? What things? All these different things that can happen. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for, all, for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen. Even, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you draw real comfort from this when you start to get in touch with the idea that that the love of God is the most important, valuable, precious thing in our lives. You know, if you, if you kind of stop thinking about the love of God, the importance of being a child of God, and you're really focused on material things, and the trial you're going through is about to deprive you of your material things, you're not comforted by this passage. But if you think sober-mindedly about who you are in Christ and what really matters, what really matters is, first of all, you're a child of God. Second of all, he has given you an infinite amount of his love expressed in the cross of Calvary. He has put you on a mission to magnify him. And no matter what can possibly happen to you in this world, none of that can be taken from you. You have an eternity that is guaranteed. It is an awesome and wonderful eternity. And therefore, you can approach any trial in your life, any opposition in your life, knowing that in the final analysis, The victory that's been won for you can never be taken away. You're standing in Christ. Your position in the heavenly places, it cannot be touched. Yeah, you could be in this world taking the slings and arrows of what's coming at you from the enemy, but ultimately he cannot defeat the ultimate objective of your existence here, nor can he defeat your ultimate destination. And so this is the way in which these these trials are spoken of. Paul here in the text, back in our text, he identifies two kinds of trials that God is working in the midst of, one of which is external. It's something that happens outside the church. It's brought from the outside of the church in. And then the other is internal. It actually is opposition within the church. The external trials he talks about in verses 12 through 14 are all that that comes with him being a prisoner of Rome. We know from tracking him in the book of Acts I mean, you could just look at his time in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. He was beaten there. He was jailed. He was humiliated. He is now a prisoner in Rome, falsely accused, had the ire of all the people of different cities on him. And now he sits in a Roman jail and he faces the real prospect of execution, which ultimately does come to pass. And Paul could, Paul could have every license to have a, a, a world-class pity party here. Woe is me, poor me. I can't believe such a terrible thing has happened to such a good man as me. But he doesn't do that. It's weird. He says there in verse 12, I want you to know that the things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. What you say? Haven't they shut you down and shut you up and shut you away in a prison? Not according to him, he says, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to the rest that my chains are in Christ. Let me just remind you, the convention for guarding prisoners in in the Roman army was that the prisoner was chained to his guard. (laughs) Can you imagine as an unbeliever taking your turn, your four-hour shift being chained to Paul? (laughs) You know, 
hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Hey, I hear you're having a fight with your wife. Let me tell you what Jesus would, would, would do, you know, and, and on and on and on and on. And everybody would know that, about Paul's situation because he wasn't a famous murderer. He wasn't an insurrectionist. He wasn't somebody who had committed heinous crimes. He was a guy that was there for a crime of conscience. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is my Lord, my Savior, and he has died for the sins of the world, which includes all of you. That's why he's in prison. You don't think that would be a topic of conversation among people in the palace? We know from other epistles that people in the, in the household of Caesar actually got saved because he was there. And if you start to lead people to Christ who are in the household of Caesar, those are high-profile individuals. People start to wonder, what in the world is going on there? Oh, they got this guy in prison named Paul. He never shuts up about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Really? What does he say? What Paul is saying is the very fact of his incarceration brings Jesus into the conversation. This is how persecution is working in Iran, in India, in China, in parts of Africa is that there are people who are suffering because of what the enemy would bring to them, and people want to know why. Why are these people suffering? And by the way, why don't they just agree to what they're being asked and shut up and, be, and live? No, they'd rather die for a Lord that they cannot see than live by just simply agreeing to follow a different faith or a different government, and they won't do it. What's up with that? Now, all of a sudden, you've opened a mind to consider the proposition of the gospel in a way that you could never do by just being a happy, clappy, good guy. There's nothing wrong with being a happy, clappy, good guy. But if you're in the midst of persecution, the very suffering you're going through speaks far louder than anything else you could say. And Paul is acknowledging this here. He, he, he's telling him, this is what... It, we won't go there now, but in Acts chapter 16, when Paul's in Philippi, and he's been jailed for sharing the, the word of God... And then there's a great earthquake that knocks the jail down. And the jailer realizes, well, I was guarding Roman prisoners. Surely they've escaped. And he was about to kill himself. Paul says, hold on, don't, don't do that. We're all still here. And the jailer is amazed. After all the suffering that they've done, he, they're showing him grace. He gets saved. His whole family gets saved. That's how God works from these kind of trials that come from outside the church. But then he also speaks of internal trials inside the church, and this is where we'll close. He says there in verse 15 that some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former, pre those preaching in envy and strife, they preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. So you might immediately say, wow, they're disqualified. That's a, that's a wasted effort. They're just clouding, they're muddying the waters. But Paul doesn't see it that way. He says in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Get a load of what he's saying there. There's these individuals who are preaching in that city. And they're not preaching because they love the Lord or even that they love the people. They're preaching because they saw the notoriety that Paul gets for being a preacher. And they'll say, I'll have some of that. So they start preaching the gospel. Now, we, we can assume that what they were preaching was not heretical. Otherwise, Paul would have taken them the task here. But he doesn't. Instead, what he says is, look, we know we're earthen vessels, right? We're earthen vessels. I'm an earthen vessel. My vessel sometimes is dirty and cracked. 
but it is carrying the words of life and it's earthen so that people will know that the excellency of the power with which I share the gospel is from the Lord and not from me. And what Paul is saying here is these, these individuals who are preaching the gospel with wrong motivation are still putting it out there. And if it's out there, it will not return void. And we see in our day all these amazing ministries that have led thousands to Christ and then all of a sudden we see a headline and we read that that pastor, those ministers, something was going on underneath the, 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 the covers, so to speak, and, and, and there's a scandal and they, they were in sin. And we say, well, goodness, does this mean that all those thousands of people that got saved at that church are not saved now? That somehow it was all a sham and whatnot? Not necessarily. If people who had who are not right with the Lord and yet we're preaching the gospel, we're preaching the true, true word and the person hearing it received it with a true heart. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not a work of that pastor. No salvation is the work of a pastor. Don't ever think that because some churches, some gigantic church that that guy did that. He didn't. The Holy Spirit did that just the way every one of us has been saved. Now, who God uses as a tool to bring people to Christ and how many of them he uses that tool for, that's his deal. That's up to him. What Paul is saying here is these individuals that are out there preaching it, really probably just to get under my skin, let them do it because the word is going out. Same kind of answer Jesus gave when, when the sons of thunder came to Jesus and said, hey, there were some other people who were preaching the word and they're not with us and we were going to, shall we call down fire from heaven? Shall we shut them up? Jesus said, no, no, don't do that. If they're not against us and they're for us, let it go forth. And so these are the kind of things we need to focus on when we're looking at this broken world we live in. When we see the heat being turned up, when we see governments getting more unreasonable concerning the freedoms of religion that we believe are guaranteed to us in our Constitution. When we see a, a society that's no longer subtle in their despising of the gospel and Christians. They're now overt. Rejoice, as Paul is. Not to say invite more of it, but simply to say God's working with that. That's a tool in God's hands. And it could be a tool in our hands. It could be an opportunity, a door to open for us to share our faith and lead others to Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for the confidence, for the encouragement that comes from this passage because Paul, the apostle, sees things as you do. And he sees how you're working in the midst of the fellowship of the saints in the midst of the sanctification of the individual believer, in the midst of the love that Christians have one for another. And yes, Lord, even in the midst of trial, whether it be from outside the church or inside the church, Lord, you can use it, you do use it to glorify and to magnify you so that we know that all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Lord, let us be named among those we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Have a wonderful day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Marini. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor David's ministry by visiting calvarychapelchapelhill.org.